Across America and around the world, famous vintners and favorite destinations. We share the stories behind the wines. Welcome to Vintage, hosted by the voice of wine, Brian Bushlack. Oregon Wine Month continues, and in this episode, we revisit one of our dear friends in the industry, artist and winemaker James Fry at Trisadum. Over the years, we've watched James launch and grow his winery from a small operation into an award-winning winery atop Scenic Ribbon Ridge. His true passion is Riesling, but he also pours beautiful Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and a spectacular sparkling wine. Trisadum's tasting room doubles as an art gallery, showcasing the work James does in his off-season during those cold and rainy months in Oregon wine country. The name Trisadum, by the way, may sound like it's Latin. It's actually a mashup of his kids' names, Tristan and Tatum, and you get Trisadum. Great to revisit and spend time with James and his gallery. And in the heart of Pinot Noir country, I asked him why he chose to focus on another varietal. Riesling was the first grape I fell in love with. Uh, when I, I didn't grow up drinking wine, although my father's family is from Alsace. And so I assume that there was some Riesling somewhere in my DNA. And so when I first started drinking wine in, in, in my 20s, uh, it was just the first grape I fell in love with. I just I loved its versatility. I loved the food friendliness of Riesling. I loved that you, you could have a dry Riesling with one type of food and a sweeter Riesling uh, with a spicy dish. And so when, when we just started looking at Oregon as the place that we wanted to plant our, our first vineyard and start Trisadum, I really wanted to figure out a if I could grow Riesling here. And so our, purposely we picked our first site was, was a cooler site and was a site that a lot of folks were, were a little bit hesitant. They thought maybe we were going too far into the Coast Range Mountains, which is this turned into our Coast Range estate where we, we built our family home and, and raised our children. But we took all of the coolest blocks of that site and I, I just told folks I was working with, I said, I'm, I'm, I want to do Riesling. And so Took a little bit of a risk putting Riesling out there, but you know now the the proof is in the bottle, and and after you know 15 years of growing Riesling out here, it, it's really turned out to be a, an incredible site that makes really wines with complexity, character, wonderful acidities, and we can hang that fruit for for 120 days after bloom before we, we pick it. And so you really do get a wonderful development. So for me, it was just, it was a love of Riesling. And then it was a little bit of rolling the dice that this cooler site in Oregon could could really produce some some outstanding wines. And so uh, we've been fortunate that uh, I think we got a little lucky and, and we, found, uh, we found the right site. That's part of it. Obviously, if you're doing something nobody else is doing, I don't want to say nobody was doing it, but very few, uh, you know, it was definitely an experiment, wasn't it? Yeah, there were. I mean, you know, I I had had uh, some of the, I mean, amazing rieslings that Brooks uh, out here makes and Shahalem makes, and so, uh, you know, there were there were examples of, of people that were making some really stunning wines, and so there was a there was a line of sight to what could be done. But for me, I didn't when we started making riesling, I didn't want to make just one riesling because. You know, you go to the Mosul, you go to Alsace. That they make, they're making dry styles. They're making, you know, medium dry styles or sweet styles. Uh, they're making single vineyard rieslings, and so 
that's what I wanted to do. And so we now make nine different Rieslings a year here. And, and it's a, it's a nice mix of dry style that are, that are very dry, but then we also have ones that, that are more of a, a medium dry style that, that have a little bit of um, residual sweetness. But for me, what's really exciting about Riesling, I just think there's just no better white grape in the world at taking what's in the soil and putting it in the glass. I'm, I know I'm biased when I, when I say that, but I think there's a lot of folks that would agree that, that Riesling is just one of the best uh, sense of place kind of wines. And so the reason that we make nine different uh, Rieslings is because we have three different vineyards and, and three very different soil types. And so we can farm them the same way. We can ferment them the same way. We can age them in the same vessels and we get three completely different wines and for me that's really exciting and it's one of my favorite things to do is to have folks visit us here and I pull out all three wines let's say three dry wines from a particular vintage and they're just amazed at how different the wines are and I just there's just very few white grapes that I think um, you can do that with where the sense of place and the terroir, so to speak, really, really comes out and really shows in the glass. And I think that's what Riesling does. That was my next question. Uh, yeah, we talk about different climate or coast range for our listeners being obviously much cooler than we are inland here. But how big of a difference is the soil type? Do you taste that come through in the wines as you would with Pinot Noir? Yeah, I think Pinot Noir is the equivalent of Riesling in the red world where it does an amazing job of depicting a sense of place. I think the soils are incredibly important. Um, I don't want to diminish site because I do think cooler sites, higher elevations, windier sites, more exposed sites, all of those things have a, a clear influence on the wine, but it starts with the soil. And, you know, on Ribbon Ridge, where our winery is located, this is all sedimentary. It's all marine sediments, uh, soils that used to be on the Pacific Ocean. They're sandy. They drain very fast. If you just go four miles from here to our Dundee site, that's all volcanic soil better water holding capacity the vines hang out longer they the fruit hangs longer and then you move out to the coast range it's a rocky site it's a mix of ocean-based soils and volcanic soils and so if you look at them in a you put the three soils into a bucket and you look at them you'd say there's no way they're coming from the same part of the world they look so different and and they really are and and i think the the vines really do this amazing job as they as their roots go 20 and 30 feet down into the soil pulling up unique and interesting elements of that place and and you taste it in the glass most people would equate a sandy soil to a coastal climate, but you're saying that's not the case. Well, technically, I mean, yeah, we're still close enough to the Pacific Ocean. So, so the soils here, which are, we are more inland than we are on my Coast Range vineyard, but um, this part of the of the world, part of the of, of Oregon, was still under the Pacific Ocean at one point. And so, uh, it just happens that this particular site really does not have any volcanic soil. And there's lots of volcanic soils uh, that either came up through the ocean floor. Or they came when the Cascade Mountains were formed and Mount Hood and Mount Jefferson erupted and lava flowed out and eroded over millions of years and you get volcanic soil. So Ribbon Ridge is a unique little island within the Willamette Valley where it really is just about 100% sedimentary soil. And it's a unique series of soils that, that have a higher quartz element to them and, and really no volcanic. So they're just very sandy 
and they do create these these unique and interesting wines on the ridge. Pinot Noir, again, drawing comparisons for our Oregon wine lovers, a very labor-intensive vineyard, right? Is the same true with Riesling? Uh, yeah, I, you know, the reality, you can grow a little bit more Riesling than you can with Pinot Noir. One of the great challenges with Pinot Noir is a yield. There's grapes that just you can get a lot more fruit from a given acre than you can with Pinot Noir. Really amazing Pinot Noir comes from sites, I believe, that have lower yields. Lower yields means for all that work that you're putting in, and it's just as much work when you get less fruit than, than when you get more fruit. You're just, you have less wine that you get to make and you have less wine that you get to sell. And so it's one of the challenges with Pinot Noir is that you, it is labor intensive. It's a temperamental grape. It's thin skinned. It's prone to mildew. It's prone to botrytis. It's temperamental and, and, but when it works, when it's great, when the, when mother nature smiles on us, it can really make one of the most magical wines in the world. And so I think that's one of the reasons we're drawn to Oregon, that so many of us come here where it's, it's a bit of a marginal climate. It's cool. It's, it's, you know, we get rains late in the harvest that can, can ruin a vintage. But you're willing to roll the dice and, and dance with Mother Nature, so to speak, because when it does work out and you get those long hang times, you can really make an amazing, amazing Pinot Noir here in, in Oregon. And so that's why we all, we do it because we have wonderfully diverse soils. We have this cool viticultural climate where we know our fruit normally is going to hang uh, past a hundred days. So you're going to get the complexity and the nuance that you're looking for with Pinot Noir. And, um, and, and so that's, that's why we're willing to kind of risk failure in order to try to make something great. Speaking of risking failure, talk about that harvest process we know that it's, uh, you know, with Pinot Noir, I mean, having been out here for harvest, how delicate that can be. With Riesling and, you know, different sugar levels and all that goes into that, is it as challenging as Pinot Noir or is it more challenging? Uh, yeah, you know, I, there's, they're both challenging for different reasons. Pinot Noir is challenging because in, in Oregon, being a cooler climate, the rains in Oregon tend to start right around the beginning of October. That tends to be about the time we're starting to pick Pinot Noir in Oregon, so historically. So you we're kind of right on that edge of where if you start to get too much rain in the middle of harvest, you, A, you're going to dilute the, the concentration of your fruit, and, and B, you're going to risk botrytis, which is um, a fungus that can you really can't have any of that in your Pinot Noir fermentation. And so you, you're dancing that kind of, let's is the fruit ready? Is it ripe? There's a storm coming. Do we pick or do we let it hang through the rain? That's the challenge with Pinot. With Riesling, you're, you're not as concerned about botrytis because you're, you're pressing the fruit. A lot of times botrytis can actually be a positive thing with Riesling. The challenge with Riesling is that it takes longer to develop and longer to get ripe. And so, and the acids are so high. So you're done picking your Pinot. You're ready to start your vacation. You're, you've been going for six or eight weeks and you're exhausted and your Riesling is still hanging out there, and it's just not ripe yet. And you have to, Riesling in Oregon is a, is a game of extreme patience. You just have to wait. You have to wait for the full physiological development. You have to wait for your acids to drop into an ex acceptable uh, range, and, and then you can pick it. Some years it's amazing. Some years it's within a couple of weeks of Pinot Noir. Some years if it gets really cold and wet late in the vintage, it's not as much of a challenge with botrytis, but you could be waiting four weeks after you've finished picking Pinot, you're finished picking Riesling. And that makes for a very long, 
exhausting harvest. And that's why I asked because I think, what, two years ago, it was the, the very last days of August, and we had a very, very, very hot August. And I think we were saying, oh, man, this is the hottest August ever. And then, you know, I, I left, and then two days later, it rained for like two days. I mean, so you just don't know in Oregon. I mean, you talk about Mother Nature, you know, Napa Valley, Sonoma, other wine regions around the world, you don't deal with Mother Nature like you do here. So you talk about soils, you talk about climates, you talk about winds, you talk about cool, and then you add in rain or something, you know, out of the blue, literally. Um, that keeps you on your toes, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, that, that, yeah, Oregon, we, look, we love making wine in Oregon. We love raising our family in Oregon. Um, but Oregon's challenge is it's a marginal climate. And great wines come from marginal climates. Uh, I'm, again, I'm biased there because I'm living in a marginal climate. Um, but the challenge that you have is you do have to, you have to be patient. You have to be willing to, to put extra work into your vineyard. And you have to be willing to to invest in a very robust sorting line at your winery because if you do have, if you're getting later in the vintage and, and you, you need to sort out uh, f- clusters that really shouldn't be in your fermentation. And so we have a line here at, at Trisatum that we, you know, on a really great vintage where everything's going great, I'll have two or three people sorting fruit that it, it, it's, it's easy on a tough vintage. Uh, where it's getting late, we're getting rains, we've got issues with the quality of the fruit coming in that we're nervous about, um, we can put 13 people, and we've had 13 people on the line. Now, the good news is uh, here, we're small, it's a family business. It's the same people every single year. It's my family, uh, my parents, my kids, it's our employees here. Our, if you're a salesperson during the regular year at Harvest, you become a fruit sorter. If you, you, know, if you work in our tasting room during the, during the regular year, for a month out of the year, you're, you're on our sorting line. And so we can ramp up very quickly from two or three people to 13 if we, if we need to, and they know how to get the work done. But it, it is one of those things that if you're going to make wine here, you, you need to be willing to, to invest maybe that little bit more because there's going to be times that Mother Nature is going to throw you a curveball. Next question may not be obvious, but bubbles and the relationship between bubbles and Riesling, because of your experience with Riesling and a white wine, did it, do you think it made it easier for you? Did it help you in terms of making bubbles, which by the way are fabulous? Um, thank you. So yeah, I, I actually do. I think the years, 15 years of making Riesling was the perfect training to make sparkling wine. For, for me, uh, Riesling's high acid. So you have to deal with grapes that are going to have very low pHs, very high acidity. Uh, Riesling also has a little bit of residual sweetness sometimes. And so, uh, you know, when you first make a sparkling base wine, it, it has no sweetness. But when you finish a sparkling wine, maybe three or four years after it was entourage, you tend to dose it with a little bit of, of sweetness um, to balance out the acidity. And so that experience of dealing with of how to ferment, how to handle high acid Riesling grapes, I think translated and helped when we started making sparkling wine. Now we make sparkling wine, not with Riesling, but with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay here at Trisatum, but we're picking them much earlier. And so we're picking them with lower alcoholic ripeness, but a lot more acidity. And so it's much more similar to what we do with, with Riesling. And so I think that experience of dealing with Riesling, I think made it a little easier for us to 
to understand the the sparkling wine, certainly from a base wine, and ultimately with our final dosage trials and creating the final product that we put on the uh, on the market three or four years later, I think there's definitely some some correlations there. You obviously did your homework before you started making sparkling wine. What did you learn in the process from when you started to when you first bottled? to when you first were tasting it that maybe you didn't know yeah so that's that's a great question one of the one of the challenges when we decided to make sparkling wine we were already an existing winery we were already making you know we were well into our years of making pinot noir and making riesling and so i already had an existing business i didn't have the opportunity when i decided to make sparkling of going to champagne and working a harvest in champagne or uh, having a chance to spend time with other winemakers in a harvest period, which is an amazing experience to kind of learn firsthand what you do. So I had to, fortunately, the wine community is, is incredibly friendly and helpful and collegial. And so you can call people up and visit people and, and taste in their cellars in the off season and, and ask lots of questions and get lots of answers. But what we really did with when we decided to make sparkling is I just started tasting all of the, all of my favorite grower champagnes that I really loved. We have a small piece of equipment here at the winery. It's my most expensive piece of equipment, but it's a spectrometer. You can put some wine or some juice in it and it gives you a wide range of information from alcohol levels to ph levels to residual sweetness to all kinds of stuff that's really important to know and and i would have a wine that i really enjoyed and i would i would just run it through our our spectrometer and 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 find out does it have malic acid does it not does it have a higher alcohol does it have how much of a, a dose does it have for the sparkling wine and i started to see certain characteristics that the wines that I loved all had certain characteristics and the wines that maybe weren't my style, they're great wines, but they just weren't my style, had different characteristics. And so when we started making sparkling, um, I had a pretty clear vision of how I was going to approach it and what we were going to do. And so uh, we did, and it ended up being very similar to the way I make my other white wines. No tank ferments, everything is handpicked sorted on the sorting line there's nothing that goes into our press that isn't hand sorted the press programs are very specific they're very dialed in all of the fermentations occurs in in barrels we don't do any any tank ferments our elevage is similar to how we do our other white wines and so i i think that fortunately the style of champagne and sparkling ones that i enjoyed were made in a similar fashion to the way I was already making white wines here, whether it was Riesling or, or Chardonnay, still Chardonnay. And so it just it just kind of worked. So would you say then, like in champagne terms then, Blanc de Blanc, or is that? Yeah, so we, well, that's it's just like I make nine different Rieslings. I have, a, I have trouble making one of anything. And so we make two different Blanc de Blancs, one from our Ribbon Ridge site, one from our Coast Range site. We make a, a Brut Rosé. We make a Blanc de Noir. And now... I just actually grafted a little bit of Pinot Meunier this past week in my Coast Range vineyard so that I can add some Pinot Meunier to one of my blends and and actually make 100% Pinot Meunier as well. So I think one of the great things about looking at wines that I loved from Champagne, I love Blanc de Blanc, but I love Brut Rosés. I love uh, Blanc de Noirs. There's the grower that I absolutely, they were 100% Pinot Meunier and and I, I love their wine. So I wanted to try to do those things as well here and not just make one style. So we ended up making, uh, we have a wide variety of sparkling wines that, that we're making and, and we'll see. I mean, we, 
ask me in 200 years, which is the right, <laughs> the right grape for sparkling wine in Oregon. It's fun to be at this beginning stage and to kind of see where sparkling might go here in the, in the new world. From Tuscany to the Tarawa of Oregon, this is Vintage with the voice of wine, Brian Bushlack. So you make award-winning wines, Riesling, Pinot Noir, and you decide, I'm going I'm to make a sparkling. Uh, as a winemaker, an artist as well, we'll talk about that. How much pressure was there on you to get it right? Because if you screw that up, I mean, you decide, hey, I'm going to make bubbles, and you know, two or three years later, uh, the end product isn't good. I mean, that's that's a major issue for everything, right? Yeah. When you have an existing brand and you've built a brand and you've built um, a, a club and you have people that expect a certain level of quality from, from your wines, if you're going to do something brand new and something different, it better be right. You can't risk disappointing people that have come to expect certain, certain thing about the, the, white, the way you make wine. So when we started Sparkling, we did it because I love sparkling wine. But when we started it, we agreed as a group and as a team that if this didn't work, we're going to eat it. We're not going to release a wine that we're not proud of putting our name on and, and putting our brand on. And, and we, I had to, I mostly had to have the conversation with my wife because, because it's an expensive endeavor to say, you know, we're fortunate that, that we've been able to, my wife and I have been able to do this with by ourselves. And so we, we don't, we don't have other investors or, or, uh, you know, a, a bank to, to talk to. We, we, if we want to do something, we, we can just do it as long as I convince her that it's okay. And, but we had to be willing when we started that if, if the wines were not of a quality that, that we expected that we weren't going to release them. So, and the reality is you got to wait three years. So we had three vintages entourage in our barrel cave before we really knew if we were going to release it. And fortunately, again, because there are such amazing people here in the Willamette Valley and folks like Andrew Davis, who's, who went off and started a, a sparkling consulting business and, and a bottling line, we just had, we were fortunate that we had a lot of help along the way. And so that, that those first wines were, um, were very much up to the expectation of what we wanted to release. So we were very excited to put them out in the marketplace. Did you ever reach out to a certain Texan for any kind of advice <laughs> on this? Or? Yeah, you can't help but um, uh, talk to Roland Souls about, about making sparkling wine here in Oregon. And, and he is, uh, he's an amazing guy, entrepreneurial, uh, smart, spirited, and, and makes great wines and very giving of his time and his energy. So Andrew Davis, who I mentioned that we work with, um, uh, worked with, with Roland at, at Argyle and talk about a pioneer, talk about somebody who, who really stepped out there and said, I'm going to do something different and, and I'm going to do it great and prove that Oregon can make great sparkling wine. Um, that's Roland. He deserves a, a ton of credit. And the fact that he's so giving of his time and his energy and his expertise to all of us that are just starting now is a testament to that kind of collegial spirit and that a rising tide lifts all boats mentality that, that really has pervaded Oregon ever since the, in the 20 years that I've been here and, and witnessed it. it. It's really amazing. And the story behind your bubbles, too. I mean, you, you can't make great bubbles without having a great story. And you have, you have that as well, right? Yeah. So when we decided to make the bubbles, I, um, I, uh, I decided to name it after my grandmother. So my grandmother's name is Pesci. So our, that's her first name. She was a gypsy. She was born in, in Great Britain in 1914. Our very first vintage was 2014, which would have been her 100th birthday. She spent 20 years uh, before she ever lived in a house. She was in a caravan, traveled from city to city 
denied an education, wasn't allowed to go to school. Uh, turn of the turn of the century, Great Britain, uh, gypsy children. When she met my grandfather, he wasn't part of the clan. He was someone, a salesman that would come and sell them supplies when they came through the town of, of Reading, Berkshire, outside of London. She fell in love. Her family said, you, you cannot marry this gentleman. He's not part of our clan. And she said, I was denied an education. I, I will not be denied love. And so they eloped when she was 20 years old. And for the first time, she moved into a house. She had five children in the middle of World War II. My mom was the middle child. So I can't imagine her being pregnant with my mother, having two young toddlers, and every night going into a bomb shelter. And so for just that determination and that spirit and the energy that she passed along to my mother, who passed along some of, some of that to, to me, we thought it was very appropriate. And so we, we named it Peshi, and uh, we put her, her portraits on, uh, on our, our court cap. And it's been great, very well received, and, and we love honoring, uh, honoring her with that, with that product. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. Now, last but not least, does Pinot Noir take a back seat in Oregon now? I mean, we haven't even talked about Chardonnay. We've talked about your Rieslings. We've talked about, obviously, the bubbles. Uh, and now Pinot Noir, which still is the flagship in Oregon, obviously. But more and more, we're talking other varietals, which is exciting. But at the same time, these Pinot Noirs are still, I mean, on the world scene, really coming into their own, aren't they? Yeah, look, Pinot Noir is is the singular red grape for certainly for the Willamette Valley. Uh, it's it is what has put Oregon on the map. It is what probably drew ninety percent of us to the Willamette Valley is because we wanted to make Pinot Noir, and we all do, and we still do, and it's still probably. Most winemakers in the Willamette Valley, it's their favorite. It's still their favorite wine to make. It's their, but Oregon is a bit entrepreneurial. And so I, I, a lot of us, you know, we, we want to make world class Pinot Noir. And, and there's many folks that have, that have achieved that here in, in, in Oregon, I believe. And we've attracted a lot of talent and investment from uh, around the world to, to come into Oregon now. But even though Pinot Noir is king, we all still have our, our other loves, whether it's Riesling. There's a, a number of wonderful winemakers that are really passionate about what Chardonnay can do here in Oregon, and they should be. And, and, and they're spending a lot of time and energy, and, and we make some Chardonnay. It's not a, a, a huge part of our, of our business, but, but I love it. I love drinking it, and, and so we make some. And then sparkling. So I, I do think, and there's probably, over the next few years, there'll be other things that people will want to push the envelope and see where things can go in Oregon, especially as we look at higher elevation sites, cooler sites, sites that are farther into the coast range, areas that 10 or 20 years ago we said we should never plant there. People are planting there now, and they're trying different varietals and different things, and I think that's exciting. So who knows what the conversation is going to be in a decade or, or 20 or 30 years from now. Uh, Pinot Noir is still going to be where it should be in the top slot, but who knows what else we'll be seeing coming out of the Willamette Valley. And as we sit here in your uh, gallery at Trisatum, what's the relationship between art and wine? And that may sound like a softball or an obvious question to people listening to this podcast, but in the, in the words or the mind of an artist and a winemaker like you, what is the correlation? Uh, that's a good question. We get it a lot because I do spend three or four months out of the year, not at the winery, but in my studio painting. And, and so I, I do get that question of the, the connection between art and wine. 
Look, the, the easy answer is they're both creative, right? They're both creative uh, endeavors. Uh, one happens to be, you know, my art is in the glass, but the other, my art is sitting on the wall. It's maybe, that's maybe too simplistic of an answer. I think winemaking, honestly, is 50% science and 50% art. And I like to say there's just, there's absolutely, there's no way you can have a good bottle of wine without science. But there's no way you can have a great bottle of wine without art. So you have to have the science, you have to have the basics to, um, to, to have the building blocks of making great wine. But you make great wine with your palate. And that's your mouth, and that's your own sense and the style. And you can't throw it into a computer and spit out an, an amazing bottle of wine. So there is a very creative, artistic aspect to, to making wine. When it comes to making art, there's far less science. I wish it was more scientific. It'd be easier that if you could just, you know, for, for me, I don't, I don't uh, paint from a picture or a place. I, I just paint what's in my head. So, which is good and bad. It's sometimes it's easier just to, if you, you, have, you have something you're painting, you know, you're trying to paint a flower or a mountain or, or whatever. You can just, it, it looks like that or it doesn't. I achieved what I was going for or I didn't. When you're painting from your head, what's ever in your head that, the challenge is trying to somehow with color and form and shape uh, and texture take something that's that's not in the real world and turn it into something into the real world. The benefit of painting in your head is that at the end of it, I either I like it or I don't, and it doesn't have to look like whatever. I'm not trying to copy something. I'm just trying to create emotion and feeling. Both wine and art are experiential products. At the end of the day, what I do, whether people are, you can't really appreciate what I do as a, as a winemaker unless you taste, taste my wine. You can't really appreciate what I do as an artist and, unless you can actually look at my art. And so at the end of the day, it's one of those, you, ha it's, you have to be there. You have to be in the moment. You have to be in the place to experience the, the product that I'm, uh, that I'm working on. The wine industry, winemaking, owning a winery is, I think there's a, certainly a romantic aspect of that, certainly. And I think as consumers, we think, oh, wow, that's nice to, I mean, what an amazing, wonderful dream come true to own a winery. The reality is it's a lot of work. It's grunt work, a lot of it. Cleaning, right? Uh, managing the books, inventory, right? I mean, it, it's, it's a very challenging business. Does it help you not only to get away from the winery for three or four months. And I'm not saying you don't set foot in the winery, but, you know, to, to, to most people in the business are, this is all-encompassing, 365 days a year. They live it, they breathe it, they taste it. For you, you get away from it. Does that help you, you think, as a winemaker? Oh, no doubt. I, I, I'm very convinced that I am a much better winemaker today because I am not sitting in the winery every single day. And that I do get a chance to get away, a chance to clear my head, a chance to focus on something a little bit different, flex a little bit of different creativity. Now, the reality is when I say I disappear into the studio for three or four months, I still come to the winery two days a week, even in the middle of my studio time. But that means I'm five days a week in the studio and I'm away from the winery. And I really do. The success of painting is I can't take my cell phone into the studio. I can't. I mean, I put on a vinyl record and it's a cocoon. And if, if I'm getting distracted the arts suffers. You can see it. It's not very good. So I need just complete isolation and freedom from what's going on in the wine world. And so what that does for me is it gives me a chance to reset. And when I come back to the winery, 
I'm energetic, I'm engaged, I'm, I'm fired up. And it's probably one of the reasons that we, I come back and we, I decide, hey, we're going to do sparkling wine or, hey, we're going to do this. And so my team kind of expects that I'm going to come out of my studio after an extended period of painting with a bunch of new ideas of what we're going to try at the winery. But it's certainly, for me, certainly a much better painter because I don't paint all the time. And I think I'm a better winemaker because I'm not always uh, here at the winery. And I was going to transpose that question, but you just answered it. So then the next question then is, what's in your head now when you paint versus what was in your head 10 years ago? What's different? Um, I'm just older. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I'm wiser or not. It's interesting that we, we had a book published um, uh, a, a year ago of, of the, the last decade's worth of, of artwork. And there's about 250 paintings in, in this book. And it's fascinating to look back. And it's all chronological. So it's, it's, it's grouped by year. And to look at some of the art that was hanging on these walls in 2007 versus what's hanging on the walls here in 2019, it's definitely evolved. There's no doubt. Look, I, I put myself through college as a, a photojournalist. So that was my first artistic endeavor was I was, I was a photographer and I worked for newspapers. When you work as a photojournalist, your job is, well, at, back in those days, it was black and white. It was realism. You're depicting reality. You're depicting a story. And it was two-dimensional. So when I started painting, uh, when I kind of quit photojournalism and I, and I became a painter, I wanted to get as far away from that because I knew I could never replicate the, the reality. I, I tried to paint a flower. I would always, I should photograph it because it's going to be much better than it, me trying to paint it. So I wanted to get as far away from photography as possible. So I, I big canvases, bold colors, lots of texture, and abstract expressionism, nothing, nothing real. That's very much what you see 12 years ago in this, in this book of the art that I was doing at that point. As time has evolved, I still do a lot of abstract expressionist work. I still do very large canvases, but um, I'm not as concerned about moving completely away from realism. So I do a lot more abstract landscapes. I do a lot of work that maybe isn't as bold in the colors as it was when I first started when I was trying to move away from the black and white world. In fact, I've just been working on a series in my studio that is nothing but uh, black and white and grays, um, but in a abstract expressionist painting. And so it, there is definitely an evolutionist as time has gone on. And, and as I've tried to, um, I, I just, I, again, I'm painting what I'm feeling, what I see in my head. And so it's, I, apparently I'm seeing different things now than I did 12 years ago. We all are. <laughs> You're not alone, except you convey it way better than the rest of us. It's always good to see you. Congratulations on the success. The book is beautiful. The wines are amazing. You're on the cover of Oregon Wine Press. We're going to get an autographed copy here, I think. So uh, must feel must feel good. I mean, you feel like what was a dream, you know, 20, 25 years ago, now you live it, right? I mean, do you... I'm sure, I know you must stop and reflect while you're painting on... You know, when we first met you, you were just opening this winery. I mean, you are just releasing wine, so... What's that like to live a dream? You know, that's, that's a great question because you never know how it's going to turn out when you're actually in the middle of it. So had we known where we'd be today, it would have made some of those early grinding days when you're planting a vineyard or things, you're not sure if it's going to work out. You're not sure if you're going to be able to sell this. You're not sure if you know, any of it's going to work, but you just keep plodding ahead and you keep moving forward. You keep 
you have a, a belief that eventually it's going to work out. So that, that's the reality of life. You, you don't know. So we've been very fortunate. Things have, have, have worked well. Um, we've been very fortunate with the people we get to work with here in Oregon. We've been fortunate that Oregon's do, doing well. So it would have been easier had we known where we'd end up, but maybe not as satisfying because back in the beginning, you, you're, you're just, there's a lot of faith and you're just going to work hard and you're going to, and you're going to keep your head down. And, and then you're, and then when you do have a little success, let's try something a little bit different. Let's, let's, let's do this. So let's do that. And so let's make sparkling wine. And so who knows what the next 15 or 20 years is, is going to, to bring, but it's been a, it's been a great ride to this point. As you mentioned, it is, it's a lot of work. It's not as glamorous as it all looks, but because every day I'm either making wine or making art, I, I never really feel like I'm, I'm working, I'm doing what, it's just what I want to do. And so I think that's, I try to convey that to my kids that whatever you do, do something you love because then you're not working. You're doing, you're doing what you want to do. And doing it very well. Artist and winemaker James Fry at Trisatum. It's spelled T-R-I-S-A-E-T-U-M. And as you know, I don't rate wines on the show. I don't play favorites. Everyone has a different palate, a favorite varietal, a favorite region. What I will say is this. Trisatum is definitely worth the trip next time you're in the Willamette Valley. James Fry and his team, they are doing it right. Thanks to James for spending time. And thank you for downloading the show from Oregon to Napa and Sonoma, Washington. We cover the big wine auctions and beyond. Enjoy our library of shows here on Vintage. Vintage is a presentation of Feedback Media. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. 